0: I haven't arrived, I'm not super successful, I'm just real. Yeah. Welcome to the Beautiful Project Podcast. What's it going to take for you, like you said, to see me? How? I don't understand. A place for ordinary women sharing extraordinary truths. I am fat, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm so much, you know, I'm learning to tell myself that I am so much more. Let my hair grow out. I can wear the clothes I want to wear. I can eat what I want to eat. Who are waiting for you to be their witness. If I can do anything, I want to be able to inspire people to just be their best. Welcome back to the Beautiful Project podcast for this last and final episode of our last and final season. And what better topic to talk about for last and final things than the topic of death, which I realize may not seem like it's completely in line with everything we've talked about for the last 40 or so episodes, but thinking about, talking about death has been really pivotal for me in finding some freedom inside of my body, and I knew that I wanted to share that with you, but I wasn't completely sure how to unpack that on my own, and so I invited this brilliant social worker slash death doula slash just like badass human being to the microphone to join me today. So thank you for saying yes, Lauren.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about death. Um, Always ready. That's right. Always ready is right. So um, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of kick it off and tell the people what you do.
1: Yeah, so my name is Lauren Gill Hayes, and I am a social worker by credentialing, and my day job is that I am a grief counselor. So I specifically journey with people who have experienced loss um, in their life, usually through hospice care, um, their loved ones, you know, they're survivors of people who died in hospice care, and then for pleasure... <laughs> I, but I mean it, and I'll explain why, and I'm sure it'll unravel, but for pleasure, outside of my day job, um, my other hours are filled with end-of-life doula work and a lot of advocacy work about how we honestly speak about death, mm-hmm. how we fold in social justice and equity into the mix, mm-hmm. and how we get really honest uh, with our inevitability. Yeah. So that we can live
0: well. Yeah, that's yeah. it too. Um, for people who don't know what an end-of-life doula or death doula is, will you explain that?
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to. And the cool thing about um, end-of-life doula work and death doula work is that it's kind of this really interesting juxtaposition in that it's old, old, old work, but now it's... Kind of come back into the fold and it feels very new very fresh very unfamiliar mm-hmm. but it's really old work it's really the work that predates a thing like hospice right mm. when we um took care of our dying in community because that's what we did mm-hmm. with what we had right so the word doula um, means companion uh, so, typically, you know of doulas in terms of bringing life into the world, and end-of-life doulas do the opposite. They help usher life out of the world. Mm. Um, so, I've worked with people who are on palliative care. So, they might not be imminently dying, but they've been navigating chronic illness for a long time, and mm. they can't help but be ready for the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um And so I've helped people with really keying in on what needs to get done. What is the business of dying Mm -hmm. that needs to be planned, that needs to be discussed with family? What uncomfortable conversations maybe need to be mediated Mm -hmm. um, with others Mm -hmm. who don't want us to die? Right? right? Right. Because oftentimes I work with people who are very comfortable with the fact that they're dying. Mm -hmm. And the people around them feel like that's a betrayal. Mm. So I, I, I work in, in that form sometimes as like a mediator, helping people get, you know, their last wishes in order, really discussing end-of-life plans in th- thorough detail. yeah And then it can go all the way up to being an active companion and kind of steward, a coach in a weird way, at time of dying. Mm. So it can look like ensuring that someone's got that presence or that the right people are in the room mm. at the time. Because mm. people have preferences about that too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah,
0: that's interesting and sort of tricky. Yeah, yeah, because you brought up a good point that often the experience of dying is layered with the expectations that the people around us put on on our own experience there, and yeah. uh, that's a yeah. I hadn't thought about that part of it. I before we go much further, I want to I want to talk specifically about the intersection of why this became important for me in the work of healing my relationship with my body and kind of of how this conversation intersects with the Work of the Beautiful project. So it's twofold for me. The first piece is about the way that other people react to people in fat bodies. So in the beginning of this work as I started to follow more fat liberation people or, or people who were just existing in their fat bodies. And the way that the world reacts to people in in Big bodies is um, disproportionate. Like it, the vitriol, the mm-hmm. the the like deep sense of just spewing hatred and judgment seems so disproportionate to what we're talking about, right? So we're talking about a human existing in a body that has more fat on it than others, mm-hmm. and I understand that it's laden with all of the things we're taught to believe about people in fat bodies that they don't care about their health and they're lazy and. Um, the, the whole list, right? But the, the more that I sort of listened and watched and paid attention, the more I became convinced that part of what happens, and I, I don't think this just happens for people in fat bodies. i am um, That's my lens. It's my lived experience. So I'm certain it happens for other people, potentially people um, with disabilities or... Yeah, absolutely. Right? Chronic illness. Chronic illness, yep. yeah. That Especially
1: was, invisible chronic illness. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: That there is this... Very intense reaction, I think, maybe not to the person, but to the reminder of, of our finitude. Like, there's something about the fact that I'm just walking around fat and not doing anything about it that causes panic in other people. It's, the, it's their own rising fear of like, but you missed the memo. We're all supposed to be desperately trying to escape this. Finitude, this end, mm-hmm. which, of course, is absurd because nobody's getting out of this alive. Right. Right? So it presented in the early days of this work that way where I, was started, I started to be able to frame people's super shitty reactions as just this externalization of their fear
1: Deep projection.
0: Deep, deep projection. And for the most part, I can navigate through it that way. But it occurred to me how much healthier we would be, not just in this regard, but in, like, blanket terms, if we could start to talk about the inevitability of the end. And then the second piece for me was really kind of what you said in your intro, that spending time with the reality— uh, that this life comes to an end has taught me how to live. And for the people who are kind of stuck in that paradigm about like, but aren't you supposed to try to outrun it? Um, it uh, it had the opposite effect on me. Sitting and thinking about or or being with the concept of my own um, mortality, mm-hmm. it actually made me less likely to ever die again, to ever... Spend hours in the gym because this idea that I'm adding years onto my life. First of all, nobody really knows that that's true,
1: right?
0: And also, so I've added hours onto my life, but I have had to spend hours in the gym to get them. And I'm like, this is shit math. This is bad math, and it's all tending toward the same end, which is just our fear that it ends. Yeah. And um, so that's the intersection for me of how this became super relevant, but. In that, there's all of this stuff about our cultural relationship with death. And so I want you to talk just broadly a little bit about what you see or your own observation about how it is that we are
1: relating to death or not relating right. at all. or are backing away yeah. slowly, slowly. Well, first I want to point out that when I see people live steeped in the cultural projection of what it means to be in a fat body, what that means for, you know, health policing and assuming life yeah. or the, the tenure on earth. I want to make sure to emphasize, right. That when we look at the data, what is the deadliest mental illness? It's eating disorders, right. It's starvation. Yep. Um, that is what's close. Like if people are truly caring about health, then they'd take up the cause to ensure that people aren't suffering
0: Correct from an eating disorder, and as like a weird uh, methodology queen sort of yeah. fact, as, like as adjacent um, that people actually in with higher uh, body weights uh, within a certain bell curve live longer yeah. than people who are underweight. Yeah, so,
1: talk about fall risk. I mean, I work with older adults. I work in right. hospice, so. Right. The great thing is that I get to blow up any sort of stats about what healthy is and what healthy isn't. And mm-hmm. I feel like um, we've talked a little bit before that working in hospice, we are hyper aware of weight loss, weight loss being a sign of imminent death, weight loss being the alarm bell right. when we see someone who is already kind of challenging and challenged with other health issues right Right? so i just think it's funny too how we know that the medical world right which is supposedly the god in this situation which Mm -hmm. we'll get to which is why we don't do death right (laughs) um even they are like hey red alert like you you need to have a body that can protect itself in so many ways
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and bodies with softness do
0: so we sure do
1: so there you go (laughs) um but yeah I, i think it's been really interesting i would say that i got into death work informally by being a person with lived experience through grief right because you can't really separate death work from grief work Mm -hmm. i think a lot of the fear around death um, is that projected grief and loss or it's people reflecting on what they have and haven't done in their own life and then saying well you're missing out on this opportunity too or we're supposed to play by the rules or this is how it's supposed to work right Mm -hmm. there's just like grief explosions that show up everywhere Mm -hmm. when we Get curious about um, our finite lives. Yeah. So I I would say that I came to this work by experiencing you know life shattering loss in in my youth, and that kind of caused this crisis of faith, this exploration of like, well, what does this all mean? What are we here for? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who navigate trauma, especially trauma around death, before they can fully conceptualize it or understand it, tend to go in a couple of directions right um one which isn't necessarily the best but was the one i skirted down was um really making sure i milked everything out of the lived experience like being hyper aware that i was gonna die yeah so started off as anxiety molded into overachieving yeah brought me back to the work as my actual life work yeah but yeah when i was 19 years old i got latin tattooed on my body. It says memento vivere, which means remember to live. Wow. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that is that got so, real intense. So I was like very motivated, right? Like, okay, yeah. what does it mean then? If, it, yeah. if I'm gonna experience death, it means that I have to inversely, like really be interested in life. I actually totally get that because yeah. I'm
0: often living in your nineteen year old self without the Latin tattooed on my body.
1: Yet. Although now you've given <laughs> you me do a it. new tattoo idea. <laughs> you could do it. No yeah. one speaks it. Um, <laughs> but yeah I So I want to start there by saying that, like, it was a murky place with death and loss have been steeped in the, like, impossible grief crisis of faith related to death and dying. Like, understand how that can be a comfortable hole to stick and stay in, especially in a culture that says, yep, you experienced the worst thing that can happen to you. Someone else dying, isn't it? You know, it's shattering, right? Yeah. So it's easy to kind of keep volleying that ball away from you and not really acknowledging it. So then again, I went really deep, going to live, going to live hard, um, for better or worse. Then came back to death work because I got really interested in what it meant when I first heard the topic of um, uh, being a volunteer in hospitals to sit and be in companionship with people who are dying. Yeah. Like I realized that was an opportunity of work to do, right? Yeah. I was looking at volunteer opportunities in a hospital. I was interested in two things, either holding babies, <laughs> holding newborns, or sitting with people dying. Oh, and I, I, I thought, that's oh, that's kind of interesting. What's that about? Yeah. So that just led to like natural digging. What does that look like to be in companionship? The death doula movement has kind of really spiked in like the last six years, Yeah. Um, really in, in common knowledge. Um, And so as a result, I get to be in a lot of corners of the world talking to people about death that are really ready for it, really hungry for it, really frustrated by it, really disinterested in it. Mm -hmm. And as most things go, when you make your profession about other people, um, the people closest to you usually have the hardest time Mm. with it. Mm, Yeah, yeah. I would say, so I couldn't speak dishonestly and say, like, all right, I'm just the person that goes around and helps people get comfortable. And, you know, this is my primary way that I do it. I introduce, like, nice paperwork, a sweet video. We talk about, you know, living wakes, the way to really, like, get the most out of this time as we know that we'll die. But then I'm struggling to have, like, members of my immediate family tell us what their end-of-life wishes are in Mm. their 80s. So, Mm. I feel like I've been aware of how it shows up and why. I get it. I think one of the challenges about speaking honestly about death is that we don't make enough room for the natural grief and respect of aging. Mm. Um, That's good. Yeah. So we're essentially like people are getting older. We're not necessarily in our specific, you know, American context, gentle with our aging people. No, we are not. Um,
0: and definitely not with ourselves as we age.
1: Right. I mean, billions of dollars devoted and investing to not only making you fear death, not only making you hate your body, but also deciding that like cell loss is bad, <laughs> that aging is disastrous, Right. that time shouldn't exist. I right. mean, I don't know. But so... I think and talk about throwing our energy into
0: a black hole. Of oh, there is no return on that. Like that is a that is a race that nobody will win. That's oh. the it's literally the only certain certain thing
1: we know in this life. Oh, and look at the people trying to scramble like. T- Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, right. like the worst people. People like you would not want to talk to in real life are like the ones throwing uh-huh. investment funds at right. trying to undo aging. Right. So you want to get old with those guys or never die with those guys? You want to be around those weirdos? No, you don't. Sorry, sorry, that was a little... It's okay, it was a good one. But really, like... It's true. You should also be very curious about who benefits from determining that aging is a problem mm. and not a process, right? And who benefits from trapping you in in fear of, of death, too, right? So, again, yeah. we don't treat our aging people well. Reti- now I'm going to get... It's going to get a little political. Uh, we don't it's take okay. care of people to, like, safely retire, to know that they won't... Like, like there's no yeah. guarantee that as you age, you won't be in poverty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know anything about the statistics, but I feel like... Oh, elderly poverty is...
0: Horrifying.
1: It's really sad. I mean, I never thought I would work in aging, and I got to grad school, and learned the truth yeah. about how underprepared yeah. the United States was to meet, you know, aging baby boomers, and I decided, like, I always worked with kids, mm. yeah, and I, and I came to this work, but there are just so many aspects to, to aging, getting older, creating infrastructure around those who are aging that I think you know, no one's saying the quiet part loud. It's, we're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of growing old. We just know the truth about what happens to people, Mm -hmm. to most people, to many people as they age in this society, we don't care for them. There isn't really a space of reverence of respect. Um, no, at best we forget about them, yeah, and they become invisible and displace them, and yeah, and continue to build um, cities and places that don't really accommodate anyone's. I mean, we can talk the same about disability rights as well, which sure. again I think also folds into it's in the same bucket.
0: Yeah, I don't mean to collapse two experiences, but they have uh, some pretty similar tenants.
1: Absolutely, sure. especially when you think about like a. A System around them that's forcing them into poverty, right? Like if you're getting social security if you, yeah. it means that you had to have worked But it's also like nothing or if you're getting disability well, when you can't have any other investments really put aside You have to essentially keep yourself on poverty just to maintain like monthly maintenance payments. Yeah, so there's just so much of that I think that if you if you don't have respect or adulation or understanding of aging if you don't have any reverence for wisdom if you don't have space in the public sphere to really honor those who are getting older among us i think it just makes sense that you marry that to the fear of death and i mean there aren't many existing creatures that are aware that they're dying right it's right it's kind of the curse of of the human experience too is being born to grow into awareness that this is limited and you I've, could always
0: tattoo it on your body, though. If if, and, if
1: you do, you need a reminder.
0: <laughs> I love that yeah. so
1: much. Yeah,
0: it's my favorite part of this episode to this second. That's so good. Yeah. Um, no, that's. I actually had not. I really hadn't thought about it wrapped up that way. I've always. I think I have interpreted mostly, mostly interpreted it mostly through. Uh, maybe a spiritual lens as opposed to like a practical like a but there I mean that is yeah. that is all that well, all resonates part
1: social work brain too that's definitely coming out where the it's the systems at play but I think you're right too you can't ignore that it's in a majority Christian nation at present um, especially in evangelical circles yeah right heaven's yeah. like the the greatest and best thing yeah but so I see some kind of like kind of the irreverence for like what it means to live, right? Like waiting for the other thing or preparing yourself only in service to that other thing. But I think also spirituality and faith play a big part and kind of fashioning what to expect, what to fear. They do. And you bring up a really interesting point though. Like,
0: um, as a former Christian, or I don't know what I am. I definitely have roots in Christianity. Um, it is sort of uh, counterintuitive, I suppose. I can't find the right word yet. But um, so that is the thing we're supposed to be like longing for, heaven, like what, yeah. what comes next, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the tenets of Christianity. And, and yet, the, um, there's deep denial and avoidance of death. In a really specific human embodied way, in those circles, it's actually deeply spiritualized, is what happens. So it's more something that happens spiritually, and so there is that—that's there's that disconnection with our bodies that makes perfect sense inside of Christianity, to be honest, because there's very little there um, in its current expression,
1: uh-huh.
0: in the current expression of of Christianity, certainly evangelical Christianity, that speaks to the. Uh, the goodness of the body and the experience of being human in a body. So it's not super surprising to me that then death gets wrapped up in that mm. because that's an embodied experience. Mm-hmm. And we can't spiritualize it completely. We can't. I mean, it's happening to, with, and
1: through our bodies. Yeah. Are there cultures that do it well? I know we don't, but... yeah. I think if you move into the direction of exploring Eastern cultures, uh, something that I know kind of cracked a lot of things open for me is... I guess I'd call myself, like, Buddhist, like a Buddhist <laughs> practitioner. But, but but through the refracted lens of being a Sicilian Puerto Rican who grew up, you know, in the United States, like, I don't know right. how much I can... As right. a Catholic, right? So, Buddhist is what I, I dwell on and live with. But there are kind of, you know... I've read stuff about how if you were to, to kind of collapse... And, oh, gosh, I hope I don't... So, I've just read monks and different practitioners say that if you were to collapse teachings or really like suss out you know where to start what's most important mm-hmm. what you really need to lean on if you're practicing kind of on the right path there's you know meditations on kindness right acceptance mm-hmm. like on un- kind of that like unconditional love and experience for the other as part of the practice that is pretty important um realizing right that everyone's bound up in their own suffering so figuring out how you can love them through it and love yourself through it yeah and then the other major one is really sitting with and meditating on your own death. Yes. So all parts of it, right? Yes. Like the viscera, like thinking of how your body will change yes, um, and kind of collapse into itself and become whatever form next, right? Like very embodied, right? It can't yes. not be embodied. Yes. Like you're, So you're encouraged to think of that. You're encouraged to think of what it will feel like in your final hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you're encouraged to really focus on the fact that this is a limited run, right? That this is a short-term experience to also be more curious about what you perceive as suffering, mm. right? So I think keeping our eyes on that, um, it's easy to, to maybe place those hardships that arise, mm. the waves that we have to coast on or figure out how to get through. Um, it helps us better delegate and assign maybe their importance or how much, we'll, how much time we'll give them. To lead us astray or to make us take a respite break or to pull us away from ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it too. So yeah, the Buddhists believe that you, it behooves all of us to think deeply about death and to think regularly about death. Um, Mm. Do you? I don't think I can think of a time that I've never... I guess from adolescence on, I don't think I've... Never been someone thinking about death, which I don't, pro- that's probably not normal. I don't know. Oh, but, okay, so. <laughs> Luckily, I I get to, it gets to be my job now. Yeah, so
0: you're like, this is why, but <laughs> yeah. really it's not why.
1: It, yeah. I, um,
0: I, it's sort of a litmus test for me now with people that I am close to. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> can you go there? Yeah, can you, because if you can go there, then we can go there, and it's important for me to be in community with people who can go there. Yeah. Um, That's not the only people that I hang out with, but there is a definite difference in those relationships because we are looking at this thing about being alive through a lens that constantly acknowledges
1: that there's an end to it, and that changes everything. I think I wouldn't be able to express boundaries properly if I didn't think about death a lot or really have it in my frame of reference. Um, I think I can be a more empathetic human towards people with uh, living with mental illness Mm -hmm. because of it. It's really interesting being, you know, a social worker and there are certain kind of tenets and ethics that you have to like get and understand, but then also being a person who can very much so understand like physician aid in dying, right? Or physician Mm -hmm. assisted suicide. um, Also like holding that both at the same time. Right. And that, that becomes part of work that people in social work professions do right mental health professionals deeming it appropriate that a person isn't suicidal but they're seeking to hasten the end of their life so there's a lot of really interesting overlaps too yeah. that I think thinking about death and seeing it as part of the grand mystery of experience mm-hmm. not as this like really hard aggressive finish line that seeks to destroy me right oh, it's yeah, kind of part yeah. of it all
0: yeah, yeah yeah oh that's really good um so there are two There are two other things that I want to talk about. I'm going to give you like a – just so your head can start noodling about it before okay. I – So I'm going to talk about the first one first, but I'm going to give you a heads up about the second one first. Okay. Before I do that. Okay. I, I want us to talk about mushrooms. Okay. <laughs> like the process of fungi. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like what they do with decomposition. Yeah. I don't know anything about it Ms. other Leon than just members. like Adrian Marie Brown had this really great – podcast with Krista Tippett where she talked about the brilliance of of how mushrooms just use this like composting experience, yeah. right? So I want us to talk about how it's present in everything.
1: Yeah.
0: But first I but so I just want to let you noodle on that first, okay? okay? Before I was like, let's go to mushrooms okay. next, okay? Okay. Uh the and this is completely unrelated. So, welcome to the final episode where Sarah cannot track a single thought. Um there, there was a book that I uh, read years ago, and it was called "Confessions of a Funeral Director." And he talked about how the advent of embalming mm-hmm. really fucked with our ability to understand how dying yes, looks. Yes, like something about cleaning it up mm-hmm, and keeping ooh. this distance with I love it. Body ritual.
1: Yes, right.
0: Yeah. And like it's and and so then we become terrified of because we because we are afraid of the unknown. We are afraid of the unknown. And we, um, this has been huge in my own healing and relationship to my body. It was the practice of looking at myself and not looking away, like being aware of the embodied, like what's really happening. And I think that we've, well, this book was super convincing to me because I think that that's part of what's happening mm. here. Like we allow no mess in death, mm. we don't wanna
1: see it. Mm. I have a lot of thought. Okay. Go. Where do you, well, I wanna, I'll, I'm want. going to start at the latter point. We'll get to mushrooms. It's I fine. promise. Yeah, and is it's that fine? okay?
0: I think we can put a pin in mushrooms. And
1: I think it'll all come together. Okay. I, I might be able to do this with my noodle today. Okay. Um, so something that I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and which is I'm a Libra, so it's kind of surprising to me that I'm thinking about this thought. But we... Kind of fail. Maybe maybe we don't. Maybe there's some linguist out there who's going to hear this and say, actually, the word for that is. But I think we fail to find language for things that we don't deem beautiful, but that are like so pure and that are a a spectacle that require witness, that Mm. are kind of special and sacred, right? Sacred might be a word that we can toss at that. But I think that's like what dying inhabits, right? Yeah, like like talk to anyone who's worked with people dying and they'll you know list off all the movies that do dying wrong and like truly suck right where it's kind of like a whisper of a final word a closing of the eyes and a sweet drift death isn't always pretty and death often isn't pretty death can look like kind of fighting against and towards the light right so people who have worked at the intersection of birth and death um, often say that a person giving birth looks a lot like a person dying, mm. right? There is the strain, there is kind of this awe and eerie like movement in the room, right? There's like a presence that you can't really describe. Mm. It's beautiful, but it's also like terrifying. Not normal uh, it, beautiful, it's right? A lot, like it's yeah. not the beautiful mm. that um, Instagram, right? I, I, like that's no. You hence, can go why there. so many mm-hmm. yeah awesome birth photographers get all of their work shadow banned on platforms, right? Yeah, because. To the well trained diet is beautiful, but to an algorithm it's not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and I think death kind of falls into that same category where it can seem really scary. I actually, before coming today, I was reading about a Buddhist monk's story of oh and I wish I could remember his name right now. But of his story um his first experience with death when he was like in his initial training. And his there was a man who had like fallen into a river and had died and the people in the town were like we can't we can't pick up the body we can't touch it well they got a casket filled with ice and we're like we'll wait till the priest and his family can come like it's you know mm. it's, it was like their own kind of uh value misalignment they couldn't do anything with the body so they called these buddhist monks over to sit with the body until the family could come the next day so they're like outside in nature and The monk is having, the young monk is having a really like visceral experience, like kind of disgusted, can smell the body decomposing, is noticing the changes, um, and to which the elder is like, reflect on this, this is grist, right? Use this. This is important. Like, there's a reason why I'm asking you to bear witness to this. And so at the end of the story, he kind of comes back to that reflection and then says like, that's when I could really understand this, these Buddhist tenets around Mm. um, meditating on one's own death, right? The whole thing. Not just what we theoretically believe is our end. But so I, I say that to say, too, I think it's important to witness death as a, as a people, as a being, um, to remind ourselves of, of truly what it is, but also to get a, a snapshot of that magic that shows up in the room. Mm. Um, and whatever word is beauty but isn't beauty, that's also there, even when it can be graphic and uncomfortable. Mm. It's it, it can't. I mean it I mean I've been there. It's yeah. it can be really uncomfortable. Even if you sit through many deaths, you don't there isn't like a hand cleansing moment where you're just zen always right. in those rooms. It's not. It can be really hard to watch someone die and they can go dying really hard, right? Yeah. Um so yes, I do think it's kind of broken people apart. And I wanna bring up I'll get to mushrooms by way of Great. crows <laughs> by way of crows. <laughs> I just told this story recently when I was in a grief counseling session with someone. Um, so I hope it's resonant to other people that listen too. but so crows have funerals. Um, when no a crow way. dies. Yeah. When a crow dies, all the other crows and his murder, his crew, right. Come around um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they want to acknowledge its death, right. That's their family member, it's community, right? There is this like reverence and understanding and, and so much as we can understand how really smart birds think or perceive, but they also are there to explore the cause of the death. So like what happened? Um, did they get hit by something? Did they eat something? Did they, you know, die? Cause they were old. They want to understand and assess why this death happened in the first place. And that might seem like past work or things that humans have moved beyond, but I don't think so. Like I think we can know how people die and why people die, but I think there's still this very animalistic curiosity to really understand what happened. Yeah, um, and I think we lose that when we don't really get to bear witness. Yeah, yeah. I think even just to your point, like the rituals of cleaning a body, the rituals of clothing a body, rubbing like oils on a body, even just acknowledging. How a body is aged, right, right. Like those are really important, reverent, historical experiences, right? That other critters are doing better.
0: We also, we also expect the experience of grief to be clean, like yeah, one um, year, one year, and <laughs> and we're allowed to like quietly weep at the graveside. But like, I uh, some of the most moving things I've seen in film are scenes where somebody grieves loudly like yeah. rips at their chest like yeah. that sort of Those that whales the that, whales like the visceral experience of being alive yeah because it is it is both extremes right like it just is um okay so so how will we make a leap from murder of crows to shrooms
1: i am not a total crunchy cruncher but nature is smarter than us in Amen. a lot of ways, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it'll work itself out. I don't fear for the earth anymore. I fear for us, you know. I think the earth's gonna be fine. Yeah, it's gonna be like that was a wild ride, and then it's gonna get a tattoo. It says <laughs> <That's-> "memento very," <laughs> um, a crater shaped like it. that. Um, yeah, I just think nature's smarter than us, and it's been doing a lot of things that we take for granted um, as systems of innate knowing that you should just look to more. And you mentioned Adrian Marie Brown earlier, her, her Pauline Gums, right? Like there are a lot of people doing this work smartly, interestingly. Um, yeah. I remember I got to read a really cool article uh, maybe a year or two ago, maybe more than that. Like the National Geographic um, started finally one apologizing for like a lot of things that they did and how they understood like you know tribal understanding yeah. but I've also just seen a huge movement towards um, just appreciating indigenous knowledge right like why think so when things would be named in alignment with their cause right and then so, like a colonizer would come in and rename it because it looked like his girlfriend's smile you know so, so there's <laughs> what, just we like did that? Yeah, there's just this like peeling back of like understanding like that we've known for a really long time how a lot of these things work and nature's been figuring out some really cool uh, biological systems for a long time that we could borrow from yeah but so I think mushrooms yeah do that well I like it right yeah so a cool thing about mushroom Well, there's, well, there's a lot of cool things one mycology is like a very vastly understudied field so if you were to get really into mushrooms and want to learn about mushrooms um, you are gonna be in shock maybe that you're just gonna learn from a lot of other people who have taught themselves um, mm. Most uh, mycology programs have like collapsed or have like no funding on the university and academic level. So a lot of people consider themselves citizen scientists, and like some of the most major mushroom related breakthroughs in the past twenty five years have come from people who are just curious about mushrooms, like mm-hmm. mushrooms a lot, and have done and funded the research themselves. Oh, I love that. so that's so really it's like cool too. A passion for mushrooms. Yeah. Well, and it kind of um, it's a really great community to kind of break into if you. Aren't interested in establishment or hierarchies or rules because there just really isn't that world as our, as you might find in some other scientific yeah. kind of realms. Yeah. So that's a cool thing to start with, and um, I bring that up because a lot of the information we've amassed is a combination of people who like professionally study mushrooms and people who just like really love mushrooms, which that's great. Need more of that. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms. So everywhere you walk in the earth, you are kind of tra- traipsing about. The mycelium network, right? So everywhere, all over, there is a network of mycelium that are integrated. So it's kind of like if you could think of it as like a mushroom root system, but it's also not and I'm gonna be careful in how much I say certain things because I'm not the smartest person in the room about mushrooms. But uh, I can make sure. But I can make sure that Sarah puts great um, references in the show notes. I will. There will be to guide people. There will be great links for to further facts. mushroom facts. Yeah. yeah. So what we know about mushrooms is yes, they are interconnected with everything. And when we think about the grand ecology of naturescapes around us, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in every type of microclimate. They're everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. They have a really beautiful um, symbiosis and connection with trees. So trees will com- communicate their own lack or things that they might need to one another through this network of mycelium. So they are—they are, they are um, a mediator. They are like an influencer of kind of like collaboration. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're use yeah, they use themselves truly in community. Hey, use my body and system in whatever way to, that helps to keep you in connection and alive with your others. That's wild. Right? Yeah. So they exist in that way. Yeah. They exist to decompose material, yeah, so right? To renew. Yeah. We can't have soil without mushrooms. Mm-hmm. We can't have like any benefit, anything that you probably love or <laughs> derive pleasure from, very likely has at some point a hand touched by this myceliated network, right? And so a cool thing about um, mycelium is that people almost see it as like the earth's version of like the internet, right? This chain of messaging, this kind of pulse, the system that exists and connects literally everything in a way that nothing else can. It's like nature's version, right? Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of really cool envisionings for what the future look like or an ecological future with mushrooms in mind as the source of inspiration, right? And so also, like, how do we make use of waste, right? There's really cool research and experimentation going on about removing toxins, oils, microplastics with mushrooms as an ally Mm -hmm. in this fight. So they're just doing a little bit of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And then now, right, there's a big kick, and we're seeing it. I I have confidence it's going to cascade, especially with um, folks living with PTSD, uh, microdosing treatment, right, of psilocybin or other psychedelics um, for mental health care. Yeah. And the thing is, is if you talk to people who enjoy psychedelics, a lot of times what they say when they have a positive experience with them is that they felt connected to everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Which makes perfect Oh my sense. God, it's the medicine in like, don't they do? Yeah. So <laughs> it's like direct transference of the message of literally why yeah. they exist Yeah, on the earth. So you can't, I tossed the word sacred around earlier. I can't help but think that seems a little bit sacred to me. Same. Um, that it's just so clearly, like the more we learn about what mushrooms do, the more we now see how it is entangled into also the messages people are receiving on their healing journeys when they're using Things like psychedelics. I love.
0: I love the community connection actually, because that's probably the last place that I want to go. So, um, when Adrienne Marie Brown talked about it, she was focusing in on how it's uh, how mushrooms are taking death. Really, they're like it's. They are this. They really are this. Like this living uh, community that yeah. is that is taking death and like composting it into what everything needs. Yeah everything they
1: leave no scraps
0: they leave no scraps which no I th- crumbs right <laughs> which i
1: think is so yeah,
0: so important as uh and and to not see ourselves as observers of nature but but we are nature we we are the same um mm-hmm. and we have forgotten that too because we've we could go into why we have, but we don't need to do that on this particular episode. Although this is the last and final, but it still has to be a 45 minutes because people lose attention. So um I, I love that, that last kind of um, note of the connection of community and the importance of that in this entire conversation, right? Because I understand that at the end, it is us and the end, right? But the... Um, even just the death doula work that you do, the the point of having a companion, having someone else right. um, to whom we are connected through that process. I mean, I've given birth, and I know that in the moments before giving birth, um, well, for instance, I was so afraid with my first child because I'd heard all these stories about women who were like, I heard about the mess of birth. Yep. And I was terrified too about these stories of women like ripping their clothes off and I was like that cannot be me. I'm far too boxed in to make that happen, right? By my third child. Yeah. I was <laughs> I was not at all concerned about the mess and there was no gown anywhere, right? It was this like really deeply visceral experience and up to the point of it happening of this child crowning, I was so profoundly grateful. For the other people in the room who were who were keeping me company. But at that moment, um, that breaking open was between me and something sacred. Yeah. And so it's both and, right? Like we, uh,
1: we're we all walking each other home,
0: Yeah. you know.
1: Can, uh, I, can yeah. I close on one thing that I just Please thought about? Do. So if, if you have the pleasure of knowing like a hospice nurse or anybody who works with people at end of life, You'll hear, you'll hear this story frequently, which is that it's pretty rare that someone dies without making contact with someone who is unseeable in the room. Mm. So usually days before death, especially in the last week, but really in like those last three to four days if someone is conscious, um, they are talking to people in the room who have passed often, so often that it's... It's uninteresting to people who work in this profession. Oh yeah, he was talking to mom. I'm thinking it's probably seventy two hours. So, oh yeah, he was reaching his hand out for her hand. He said it was wow. beautiful there. He said he was ready to go. Um, wow. Yeah, it's it's truly so common. I so common. Um, And of course, there's medical terminology for it, right? Like a What is it? Terminal agitation. Yeah,
0: of course. Neuronal firing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's cute.
1: It's cute. But (laughs) but to that point, that like even still, we are truly seeing people on their deathbed, yearning for community, naming community in the room, getting prepared for the transition, and feeling so much safer when they know that they've got their beloved others there. So to that point, I think like how you said, having others in the like, I think, yeah. Death is one piece of many of the challenges, triumphs, work of being human. Yeah. But it's all the same medicine.
0: Mm. It's all the same medicine. So good. Thank you for being here um, for this conversation that I couldn't have planned any more appropriately if I would tried. Um, if I think about four years ago when I sat down across the mic honestly nervous in every interview that I did. I had no idea what I was doing or what I, or why it mattered or if it mattered. And now four years later, we have this collection of um, a little over 40 stories, 40 conversations of women in all sorts of context, with all sorts of experience about what it means to be them in their bodies in this life. And I... Deep gratitude is like the biggest understatement I've ever said in relationship to something that moves me so deeply, but I have deep gratitude. And so um, at the end of this last and final episode of our last and final season, I want to leave you with the reality that endings are almost always the best kind of beginnings. And uh, the thing that I hope for anyone listening is that You know the sacredness and the magic of coming back to your body and home to yourself. Thank you for staying with me all this time. I'll see you soon. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for being willing to be a witness to these women and to their stories. If you loved today's episode, be sure to subscribe and write a review. And most importantly, invite the women you know to join this chorus of courage. And help us make a world where everybody belongs. I'll see you all soon.